Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fretman's Podcast. I am your host, Fretman, and today we're coming to you live from the parking lot at NAMM. That's right, right before NAMM's going to start. So this is kind of a prequel to NAMM, um, or it's, some people say uh, it might be the pre-game show for the Super Bowl. For us musicians, this is the prequel to, or the pre-game show for NAMM. I do want to give a shout out to Joe Gigan. Uh, I know you've been waiting for this episode. Um, you know, I was trying to get you in right before the end of the year, but just couldn't cut it. So, so many activities going around the house. Um, got a grandma that was in the hospital. So she's recovered. She's back at home. Um, we got sick here at the house and there's five of us. So that, um, that flu just spread like wildfire. Um, so, and a shout out to all the firemen out there in Australia because they're incredible. Um, so if you haven't donated, donate to the cause. There's a lot of animals that are being left behind or burned and really need our help out there in this world. So on this episode, I had a chance to interview the one and only, the king of war, that is Joe Gigan. You can find him, Joe Gigan Wall. Yeah, if you put his name on a search engine, you'll find him. He an uh, incredible person, incredible guitar skills, and had the chance to uh, interview him uh, right before the end of the year and uh, try to post it before the end of the year, but just couldn't, couldn't make it. But uh, we're back on live again. Uh, we're here at NAM, like I said. We're, we're uh, doing interviews, and uh, we're going to put this episode out, and you get to enjoy and listen to Joe Gigan and his process of his pedals and his different techniques and what makes a wall pedal so uh, incredible and personalized for your guitar playing technique. So enjoy this episode. This was a long episode, so I will be posting uh, a second part to it uh, later down the year. And just stay tuned and uh, enjoy this episode. So today we have Joe Gigan. How you doing, Joan? Pleasure to meet you. Yeah, same here. I listened to uh, your latest podcast uh, to get familiar today. It was it was cool. Uh, that was with the vape guitar guy. The vape. Oh yes, um, Jim Colonado. Yeah, the uh, vape caster, the vape guy. I forget his vapor, yeah. vapor guitars. Yes, yeah, he was a roadie for uh, Jeff Hammond for uh, Slayer. Oh, wow. From the early years, uh, when they were back uh, teenagers. So you know, he knew him, um, you know, way before he passed away and all that. So That's cool. Um, so tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm 59. I've been playing guitar since 1973, maybe a little before that. But my brother and I were both left-handed, so we didn't actually get a guitar that we could string up left-handed till I was 13. My dad had a guitar before that, but... We had to play it upside down. So, and we knew from Paul McCartney and Jimi Hendrix that if you were left-handed, you had to string it, you know, correctly, and all that. But what I've been doing for the last, the reason that you know me, and and what I've been doing for the last ten years really is uh, focusing on wah pedals. I built a lot of pedals in the early two thousands. I designed some circuits about twenty years ago that are kind of well-known in the DIY community. And I got back into it pretty heavy in 2010 
And this time I kind of focused on wah pedals, which was a little bit of a new thing for me because I didn't, when we were playing live, I never even really used a wah pedal that much. So it was kind of a, a weird thing to get into um, that that late. But once I got into it, I got a couple of rare old wahs in the early, like 2010, early part of this, this decade. And I found a Maestro Boomerang BG1, which was really rare. I had heard about them, but I'd never actually seen a real one. And and we found one on eBay and picked it up. Oh, wow. And it really did have, it had a magic to it that you just don't hear in, like the stuff that people said about them, it really did have a, a real interesting harmonic quality and just a great sweep. It sounded like those old records. If you ever think about that, that um, game show, um, the match game, it's got this. I could swear that's a boomerang on that on that theme song, but I, I could be wrong. But that's the sound that it has. So I started trying to explore what it was that made it sound like that, and because I had, you know designed pedals before and worked on electronics i i just applied that to to wah pedals and by about 2012 i started doing it full time i was making wahs and selling them on ebay and i had been doing construction and i just decided to go full time with it in 2012 and that's what i that's how i've made my living for the last six years i've had um people manufacture sub assemblies for me and I, I have parts made to my specifications different places. I get my pots from Canada oh, and okay. I've been selling my own brand of wah pots since 2012. And we've sold about 7,000 of those, which, you know, in the, in the big wah world, that's not a lot, but for, you know, for coming out of my house, that's, that's a lot. Yes. A lot. Yeah. And they're made in Canada by this company, uh, PEC, and they're made, it's one of the last companies in North America that's making pots the way they used to be made in the 60s and 70s to the old military specifications. Yeah. And they weren't tough enough to hold up in a wah, so I have to retighten the tabs. I buy them brand new, of course, but I, I have this whole process I do to make them more durable to go in a wah pedal. And then, of course, they don't have the gears on them, so I have to have my own gears made, and um, I put all that together here. And, and so I also sell to other manufacturers. I've been supplying other other makers for this whole time as well. So I kind of have a wholesale side and a retail side. Oh, that's that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, and I've, because I've explored the, the old circuits so much, um, I have contributed to other like a lot of my customers will also ask me to contribute to the design of their WAS. Unfortunately, most of them get into it and then they'll build a hundred or 200 and realize it's too hard and they'll, they'll bail. So only one of my commercial customers actually stayed with it. The rest of them have all gotten in and then gotten out, but it's, it's hard to make a WAS work really smooth. There's a lot of mechanical subtlety to it to make it everything really work well together dunlop has it down their quality control just keeps getting better and better i use a lot of dunlop parts for my shells because there just isn't a better shell in the world i could i could tool up and have my own pedals made but 
I don't, I'd have to do it in such a large quantity. I'd have to borrow money and I've done this whole business with no credit. So I'm, I'm just building it up on, you know, cash flow. Wow. So everything, so I buy the, I buy the was either used or sometimes I'll buy a bulk of Dunlops from a, from a wholesaler. Uh, I haven't done that in a couple of years, but even if you get one that's about five years old, they're so durable that the shell usually looks brand new. And a lot of times I'll end up either repainting them or doing my own treatment to them. So there's a visual element to them. And I, most of the stuff I'm selling these days, I put a whole new set of guts in. We, I've designed my own circuit board. So we have all our own internals on, in them now. And then on top of that, you also sell, well, on the retail part, you have the walls that you sell that you um, customize that you make, uh, and you also have a, a Joe Sonic, correct? Yeah. Well, there's one of the things that's t tricky about being in that business is I'd say 70%, 80% of my customers, they still want that classic Hendrix sound. I, you know, at least half of my customers are probably Hendrix. They want it. They're trying to get that Hendrix sound. So you, everybody that's in this business ends up having to make something that's a pretty close replica to the to the 60s Vox. Um, either there's different versions of what Hendrix used, and there's a lot of people that study it. But so it's just like a, a band having to play covers in a bar. You have to make those those Vox replicas because that's what a, a large part of the public wants. The Joe Sonic is one of the ones that I designed myself over about a two-year period. It's based on the color sound which was also the same as the Marshall Supawa that came out in 67. Okay. And pretty much all the classic Waz came out the same year in 67. But the color sound had a, had a really interesting sweep and I'd had a couple of really good ones. So I analyzed it, but I went into LT spice circuit software simulation and I tried to optimize it even more to get the sweep even more even and more dynamic. And it, it was about, two years in my spare time, kind of back and forth, building, building them and then still analyzing it in LT Spice. So it was kind of a, a dual process where it was being analyzed, you know, computer wise and also building the real ones to, to back up what I was seeing on the graph. And what ended up happening was the Josonic and it's, you can get it, you can tune it to sound very much like a color sound from the 70s. And they kind of varied somewhat, but you can definitely get it to sound like a color sound if you turn the trimmers. It's got quite a bit of adjustability inside, but you can also get it to go a lot more radical and be a lot more modern sounding. Um, so the Joe Sonic is one of, I probably have about 10 original designs that I'm selling on Reverb and eBay. And it's hard, like I was saying, when I talked about the Hendrix thing, it's hard to get people excited about something that they don't know about. If they, if they just want to try, if they think they want to just sound like Hendrix, then they're going to, everybody's going to buy that same thing. So one of my challenges lately has been to try to figure out how to spread the word about these. Get people interested to try new things. Exactly, exactly. And I had a couple ideas, and I, I'd like to run them by you and see what you think. Because, oh, awesome. you know, yes, yeah. Um, 
one thing you mentioned about, you know, how expensive it is to travel around if you were to go try to interview everybody in person. I want to get in a vehicle and just go set up a tour and go do clinics around the country. I don't really have dealers, but I'd like to start setting up a small group of dealers that are that have a nice kind of not high end, but that that focus on more of the unusual stuff outside of what like Guitar Center is selling. Yes. More of the, you know, more of the neighborhood guitar shops where guys still go. If there are any still left, I know there are still some around the country. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to, go, I wanted to try to like set it up ahead of time, but go around and and do like a trio show and actually do it like a clinic where we actually play songs with a with a bass player and a drummer and I play guitar and demo the waz and play some songs and and then you know answer questions. I wanted to go out and kind of promote my unusual designs along with the classic stuff. So that was one way that I had an idea to get the get the word out. Another way was to uh, do some kind of a wah club where I send out, uh, try to get at least 20 people involved where once a month they would get a wah and then have to send it you know, back in if they don't buy. They have the option to buy it, but they would be able to try 12 different wahs in a month. So that would be for real wah freaks people who you know have the time to test a new one every 30 days yeah and i i did a go to the nam show but i didn't have a booth two years ago and i haven't gotten it together to go this year um it's kind of out of the range of what i can afford to do marketing wise do you have what did you think of those two ideas that that's pretty good actually i I like the the club one you know because that's kind of what is a trend right now you know, it's like the, the, the shaving club where, yeah. you know, you for a dollar or three bucks or whatever, it's five bucks. Every month you get a new shaver and all that and you send in the old one, you get new ones. That actually is a pretty good idea. That's pretty cool. Yeah, there'd have to be some kind. I haven't worked out all the details yet, but I think the, the holidays is a good time to announce something like that because a lot of people are kind of off work and on their computers and stuff. So I was going to try to go on gear page and uh, I don't actually have a website. Um, and I've been directing people more to my eBay store, which is, um, Kalena underscore five K A L E N A underscore five. But if also, if you just search on eBay for Joe Gagan, wah, it'll, it'll come up. Cause I've got a hundred some listings on there. So well, there was, uh, uh, my buddy, uh, Tony, I forget his last name. Um, He's pretty pretty famous on YouTube. Was at my booth at the Dallas Guitar Show this year, and he he said he made a video that came out in July of of me at the Dallas Guitar Show in May, and uh, it's like a 28 minute video, and I did get a pretty nice bump from him putting that video out. That's good. Uh, yeah, that's good. Blanking on his last name right now. He's Tony McKenzie. He's uh, he's famous for he does all those reviews of like Chinese Gibson copies and stuff. Yeah, he's um, Australian, right? No, he, I know he's or, English. Or he's British, okay. Or English. Yeah. He's yes. been doing it a long time. He's, I think he's, I don't I forget how many subscribers he's had. But when after I talked to him for a little bit, I realized I'd been watching his videos for years. I knew, I knew about it, but I didn't recognize him when he was at my booth until we got started talking. <laughs> but really, the, the biggest thing that I have to demo my products is my YouTube channel, which is also just Joe Gagan. If you put in Joe Gaganwa in YouTube, I've got 600 videos on there, and at least 300 of them are about Wa. 
or, you know, showcasing my different designs. So it's not unusual for somebody to fall into the rabbit hole and go listen to 10, 20, 30 of my videos trying to see what I make that sounds yeah. the best for them. Because why is it really unique? It's a personal thing. It, everybody's rig reacts differently to them, and people have a different thing they want to hear out of a wah. Yes, yes, it is. It, it It is a big spectrum. It definitely is. It's almost like the overdrive, you know? There's thousands well, of overdrives. Right. But why? I think... Go ahead. I think it's... I think I'm lucky. Probably one of the reasons I've stayed with Waz so long and so much, because I, I am, you know, good at other other types of pedals, but I get, I don't think you can really hear the subtle differences in an overdrive on a YouTube video, even as good as the mics have gotten, and people have good have good speakers on their on their phones and their stereos and their headphones now, but. I don't think you can really, I think in overdrive, you pretty much have to experience it in person. Whereas with a wah, because there's so much, uh, there's so much richness and harmonic information going on. I think you really can tell a lot about the character of a wah, even from a, from a YouTube video. Yes. And, and the wah just has a bigger spectrum, you know, you can right. go really low, you could go really high. And everything yeah. in between. So there's a lot of variation where an overdrive, it's either you click it on or you click it off. Yeah. And, and if you have a really, you know, there's, there's, there are some exceptions to what I'm saying. If, if a player has really good touch sensitivity, if they, if they have really good dynamics with their hands and, and also just turning the guitar down and they're, especially if they're playing through a good amp, uh, you you can sort of tell sometimes with an overdrive if it's really touch sensitive, you know, how how it breaks up when the guy digs in a little more and all that. But I think there's a there's a tendency with overdrives for people to just turn it on and just go full, you know, full bore the whole time. Yeah. I think that's why it's a good thing. I think that's why it's a good thing there are some really good players demoing fuzzes and overdrives. Now are on, are you well, you're doing a lot of electrical stuff. So you, you're an electrician or did you study in no, electronics um, or is something you just picked up? I'm totally self-taught, uh, but it, it comes from, you, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Southern California. Yeah, okay. So I've been in um, a bubble all, all my life. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, my parents, my dad was a doctor and we moved to New Mexico when I was a little kid and we lived in rural northern new mexico so we being that my brother and i were both left-handed we had to start working on our equipment at a young age because i mean right away we had to start we had to buy right-handed guitars and turn the strings around so it, it was just uh we, we were forced into you know making our own stuff and plus living out in the in the woods you just you had time to do it you know yes um we were kind of lucky in a weird way because my dad had a big rock record collection when we were small and I'm old enough that I was real heavy into the Beatles when I was young, but all my brothers and I, and we were in Española, New Mexico, and there were a lot of great musicians. It's, there's a real tradition in Northern New Mexico that the musicians are great. 
but they didn't really have the right feel for rock. It's almost like they had had their accent was on the because there were so many rancheras, they didn't they couldn't they couldn't put the the accent on the on the quarter notes the way if you weren't raised in rancheras you yes. we basically had a we basically had a an advantage we could actually play rock because we hadn't grown up with rancheras like all the rest of the people so even before i could drive i was the oldest brother of three brothers we had a band and my mom would have to drive us to the gig so we were making money before we even were old enough to drive <laughs> because we were playing like we played, uh, we were really into Cream, and there was a lot of stuff on the radio, like Bad Company, and we did a bunch of Rolling Stones and Cream and, uh, you know, some Eagles. You'd have to just do all the stuff that was on the radio, but we were able to copy it. Even though we were little kids, we were able to copy it well enough to, Make money you know, off of it. <laughs> well, yeah, there used to be dances, you know, there, the schools would have dances and they would pay bands because, you know, there were no big DJs back then, you know. No, that's pre, pre-DJ days. So that evolved, you know, we, you know, I, I grew up and I didn't, I didn't stay with music. I got into construction, okay. but my brothers stayed with music and they kind of stayed with it more than I did. But by the time I was in my mid thirties, I wanted to get back to it. And, um, and I had never really totally quit, but I got back into it in, in the mid nineties. And I started a band with my, the middle brother, Tim, the, the left-handed one, my youngest brother's a right-handed bass player, but Tim and I started what we called the Gagan Brothers Band, and we were trading off bass and guitar for a couple of years, and we started booking ourselves in a little circuit around the Southwest, uh, Colorado. We were from New Mexico, but we did Colorado, quite a bit of Arizona, and by 98, we were playing Texas a lot, so we kind of had our own little circuit that we developed ourselves. And then in 98, I designed uh, double necks so that we had bass and guitar on the same. We both played double necks that I designed. We had a guy build them for us. So we called ourselves the world's only double double neck left-handed band. And <laughs> it was, uh, we really uh, concentrated on the showmanship. We were a blues rock band okay. and we put out three CDs. Uh, we broke up in 2003, but by the time we made our third CD, we had gotten enough going that we uh, thought we wanted to get a good producer. And we checked around with a bunch of people and we finally got uh, Jerry Donahue of the Helicasters to agree to produce our third CD. Somebody that we knew in Santa Fe put us in touch with Jerry Donahue and he produced our third CD and he came out from LA and stayed out here for a week and a half and, and worked with us on it and then took it back to LA and mixed it with his people in LA and we never actually uh, got it released fully. They were, they were going to put us on the Helicasters label, but the whole thing, the whole record industry fell apart about that time. Mm. And we were, kind of, we were kind of running out of gas cause we'd been playing on the road for eight years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we took it, we took it as far as we could, but we, you know, we thought we were going to, you know, we thought we were going to be rock stars, but by the time you're 40, you have to realize, well, maybe, maybe this isn't going to happen. And, and that's about the time we got in. My brother, Tim was in the band with me, uh, was making amps and I was making pedals. And there, there was the early days of the internet and people were, there were a bunch of forums where people were sharing information about amps and, and pedals and stuff. And a lot of the people that were on those forums back in those days are now famous amp companies like Two Rock and 
yes. Andy Fuchs was hanging out uh, with us in those days. So we all, it was a real small community back then. Uh, Voodoo Amps was was around back then, just hanging out. Uh, Zvex was on the forums in the in the pedal forums. Uh, a lot of the people that were hanging out are now either working for pretty famous companies or started some of the big companies. Uh, and so I just learned from other people on the internet starting in about 99. Wow, and that's pretty cool. Because we were playing on the road so much, a lot of my early circuits that I was modding and designing, I was able to test them out with a lot. We had a really loud drummer. So the pedals that I was designing, they had to have enough treble to cut through yeah. a really loud drummer. And so that actually ended up becoming a problem. When I started my first company in 2001, 9-Volt Nirvana, I was selling these designs that were designed for live, loud. They worked great in studios too, but for bedroom players, they were way too bright. And I ended up getting some bad reviews online because it was just not the kind of pedal that sounded good to a bedroom player. So that company, that company was my first pedal company, Nine Volt Nirvana, and that went from 2002 to 2004. I grew too big, too fast, and borrowed money, and ended up having to close it down. And I got a kind of bad rep for a while because I left uh, a fair number of people without them getting their pedals, and it took a couple of years for me to pay everybody back. Um, I went back to construction and I didn't want to do the cowardly thing and just disappear. I, I had to, um, go through and just either send people pedals. I was making them in my spare time, but I also was giving people refunds. And that's what allowed me to come back in 2010 as I, I made sure I didn't just leave a bunch of people with a bad taste in their mouth. Well, that's, that's really nice. And, uh, as being honest, you know, that's an honest person. You know, it, well, as far as it was, you know, we've seen right we've thing. seen we've seen this boutique pedal thing go um, through many phases. generations now. Yeah. yeah, phases, and it's a very tempting thing. A guy will we've seen it over and over again. A guy will buy a kit, or he'll go online and he'll figure out how to make a fuzz face or a tube screamer clone or whatever kind of pedal he wants to make, and it's really fun and it comes out great and all their friends hear it and they go, Oh, you make, make me one of those. And pretty soon they're making a couple dozen pedals and they want to start a company, but it's really, it's really hard to make enough to make a living at it. So it's really common to see somebody start out real enthusiastic. And then two years later, you don't know where they are. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a hard business. Yeah. And, you know, it's gone through all those waves. I was in what I consider to be the second wave boutique. Okay. The first wave was um, Zvex, Mike Fuller, Full Tone, uh, Way Huge, Prescription Electronics, Voodoo Labs, companies like that in the mid-90s. And then by 2000, guys like me and uh, Robert Keeley started out the same year I did. Um, Wampler was around back then. So that was kind of the second wave. Uh, cattle and bread came out of that that era. You heard of cattle and bread? Yes. Um, and then there was third wave, and I don't know what wave we're on now, but it, it just kept going and going and going. But we've seen a lot of companies come and go. 
Yeah, that is true. I mean, uh, just seeing them at NAM, you know, you see them uh, one year and then you don't see them at all. Or they're right. not even on the internet after that. Yeah, and it is it is kind of a fad thing. It's almost like a flavor of the month club or like yeah. having a hit record. When my Dinosaur Fuzz came out in 2002, it was a real popular pedal for about two months. And then a couple of months later, I started seeing used ones showing up on eBay. And it was such a big hit that a lot of people were buying it that weren't even the right customers for that pedal. They just thought it was the thing to have. So you get this heavy shakeout where a bunch of people are selling theirs a couple of months later, and then you're competing with a lot of yours used on the market. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's heartbreaking. Happened, that's happened with my Waz a little bit, but not as much uh, because I've kept the production low. I haven't gone, you know, real heavy production. Everything's kind of made in small batches and I have so many different models. It's hard for me. I couldn't keep 50 of each thing in stock or cause I'd have to have a half a million dollars in invested in parts and so right. forth. So the way I do it is more like um, everything's done in sub assemblies and everything's kind of half built. And then when I get an order, I put it all together. So a lot of them are still built almost like they're definitely finished out one at a time. And so they, there aren't people really aren't selling theirs used for as many of as I've sold. Uh, I sell kits for Dunlop shells also. So I, I usually send out about 300 to 500 kits and was a year. And for that number that go out, very few show up on the used market. And so that, that tells me that people are keeping them They're and they like them. them. Yeah. They like them. They're modifying them for themselves. You know, not right. to uh, exploit it, but for themselves, for their own liking. And it is, you know, the wall is a, a, one of those pedals that's more personal, you know? Right. Do you do you have a wall? Do you have? I do have a wall. It's not in my possession. My uh, brother-in-law actually <laughs> has it right now. <laughs> um, yeah, he plays in a band, in a rock band, and he's like, hey, yeah, can I borrow that? I'm like, yeah, go ahead. So it's been what probably if- about two years. It's a... Uh, a uh, crybaby. Yeah. Well, if you don't if you don't miss it in two years, you must not have been using it that much. No, I've I've rarely used. No, I've never used it. Maybe once yeah. or twice, just to kind of play the the Hendrix, like what everybody does, tries to play the yeah. Hendrix sound. Well, crybabies they've gone through a lot of phases, but uh, I can't say enough good about Dunlop. You know, you know. It would be, uh, you know, some people would be tempted in, in my position to badmouth Dunlop so they could buy my stuff because it's it's a different experience. The the boutique stuff is a little bit, it's just a little bit better. There's a reason why it's boutique, yes. Because it is, yeah, but as far as being able to go into Guitar Center anywhere in the United States or anywhere in the world and get a crybaby for. 70 bucks out the door you know plus tax you know whatever brand new wah that that it'll it's gonna last 20 30 40 years and it's 70 bucks they do an incredible job they say and they sound great i could grab a crybaby and go do a gig with it and it'd be great and you know you get a like you said you get a wah pedal from you know for 70 bucks you know you spend another 40 dollars, 50 dollars, and you get a wah kit that you make 
and then you can right. really personalize it the way you want it. Yeah, we. Th that was the reason I came out with the kits. I was selling a lot international. That's kind of fallen off some because the, the exchange rates have kind of gone unfavorable in certain countries. Um, the, the Brits had a lot better buying power for U.S. goods five years ago than they do now, for example. But the kits are a nice way to be able to, because everybody's got an old crybaby laying around. And uh, so the kits, because they fit in basically any Dunlop from 1989 to 2020, that's a lot of wash shells. That's, that's why. So it's a nice way to be able to, you know, for 1350, I can ship a, a kit to England instead of 40 for the shipping for a WA. So it's real, it's a real nice way for people to be able to get the kind of circuits that I design without having to spend as much if they're willing to do the work. And I even had a guy write me and say that his eight year old daughter put his in for him. Wow. <laughs> so I guess, yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to get back to the the different types. The Joe Sonic was one. I tried to simplify it a while back because one of the big problems I have is people go look at my stuff and it's overwhelming because I make so many different weird things. Now you, so I, you have it broken down into a couple of categories, right? You, you call yeah. it families? Exactly. Yeah. We, we, okay. Well, tell us about that. Cool. Um, yeah, you, you, that's you did your homework that's cool um th there are some exceptions but everything i do kind of falls into one of three categories there's the box and crybaby family which those two circuits were identical in the 60s and they kind of diverged from each other a little bit over time but that's the basic wad that most people are used to is the box crybaby type and the second family is the boomerang type. The Maestro boomerang came out the same year as the box 67. And it's got a different kind of emphasis. It's more of a low mid. It's more swampy, a little more vocally in the low mid to mid. Um, and it seems to have, it's a little bit longer travel the way the shell is. You've got more there's a little more fine range with your foot. You can, you can kind of nuance it a little better. And the third family is the, again, the Josonic or the color sound type we were talking about, which goes back to the Marshall Supawa. And that's also a different thing in that it doesn't have that. Wow, it doesn't have that wow sound in the middle of the sweep as much. It's more of a smooth filter that goes from low to high kind of without, it does it in a very even but very harmonically satisfying way. It's almost like a rainbow is, is kind of how I think of it. Yeah, and, I, and there is samples for the listeners listening right now. Uh, Joel Gigan has samples on his YouTube page, and you can actually listen to it as he goes from the different settings or the, the different pedals and different heights and all that. And it's amazing how it sounds. It does, yeah, like, like you said, you know, it sounds like a rainbow almost. Right, right. And so there are, within those three families, there a lot of my original designs have origins in one of those three categories. And so, you know, without going into too much detail, I kept going kind of like wilder and wilder with some of the original designs to the point where 
some of them have um, almost like they almost go into like a super vocal category or they they get like gargly or warbly in the low end. Uh, one of those is the Boomer XP. Uh, it, it actually kind of like uh, burbles in the low end. So if it might have use to some people, but not others, it's kind of, but somebody might use it on a record and it would be a really uh, a unique effect. It would actually like be almost like ear candy on somebody's track if they used it. Yeah. And I need this one called the Angry X because it's that same concept. I call it the Angry X because it'd be like if your if your ex was really pissed at you and yelling at you on the phone. <laughs> but uh, it it does this oscillating almost throughout the range. It kind of like depending on how hard you pick, it almost goes into like a ring modulator sound. So you can really dance on the edge of having the pedal really become part of the music like when you play a fuzz that's um that's kind of like reacting crazy different depending on how hard you hit the strings or how you how you pick or how loud your volume is on your guitar so if you go to youtube on the joe gagan channel and look up angry x there's one that's about 10 minutes long you can tell i like a wah you can tell i like what's going on if if the video is more than like five minutes long because and I'll just turn it on. I'll turn on the recording device and I'll just go as long as I don't like edit my videos. They're just like raw. Whatever's coming out that day is what's going going out to YouTube. But if you see a video of mine that's five minutes long, seven minutes long, some 13 minutes long, if I'm going that long, you know that I'm starting to like it so much that I don't want to turn it off. So that's usually a pretty good sign that it's one that I like. And I I do kind of like the crazier ones better because. I think they just bring out more uh, interesting musical ideas. Yeah, but you become more creative. Right. Well, and it's probably just because I do it so much. You know, you get bored with it. It's, it's like if you were a chef and everybody was, you know, was wanting uh, eggs over easy all day. And then, you know, you want to make something different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good example. Yes. <laughs> and I do, you know, I don't, I don't mean to, you know, going back to the, the classic, you know, Clyde sound, the box 67, 69, you know, Clyde sound that Hendrix had or, or Clapton and, and Jeff Beck has some great wasps and Jimmy Page did. Um, I still love those sounds and I've played some really magical pause from that era. Uh, so I, I don't dislike them, but at the same time, there are a lot of people making really good replicas of that. So for me to stand out, I think one of the best ways for me to do that is to just keep trying to forge a new path into the future rather than just keep recreating the past. Yes, yes. And I think that's one thing that sets you apart from them already since you've been doing this, since I've been, you know, was recommended to you by um, Mr. Uh, Hex Henderson, by the way. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Quick Great. shout out to him. Uh, he's the one that recommended me to you. Um, yeah, that's what sets you apart, that you're actually trying new things with the wall versus, you know, recreating the classic ones. Well, Hex, you know, we could we could talk about Hex for a second. That guy is uh, <laughs> he's like a rare gem in the music world because he's he, he's like an encyclopedia of gear. He is very adventurous with his ways that he likes to get his sounds. And for those who don't know, 
Hex Henderson. He's one of the most radical lap steel players. He's like a rock lap steel player who just blow your mind. Oh yes. Uh, and, but he gets incredible sounds and they're, they're different because he's, he's never using the same rig. I mean, he's got gear that he always goes back to, but he's like me. He's a sonic adventurer. He just goes out and he's always finding new great sounds. He always sounds great. He plays great. I found him probably on Instagram four or five years ago and he was passing through Albuquerque and he got to stop by and actually play a bunch of my was here, here at the house. And my son Scott was working for me at the time. So we just had a blast when he was here. No, oh, yeah, he's he's definitely a throwback from the days, and he's uh like you said, adventurous. <laughs> I actually got to interview him at the uh, In and Out. Uh, yeah, oh, one uh, evening, and we ended up being there like four hours. That's how long yeah. it, you know we were there. <laughs> he's he's got so much knowledge. I, same thing happens when I get on the phone with him. All of a sudden, an hour goes by. You know, and we're talking about all kinds of stuff because you know he's he's a little bit younger than me but uh we and he was in colorado and i was in new mexico so we have a little bit of that when you grow up in a remote area it's like you hold on to whatever gear knowledge you can find any way you can find it so it's almost like you become more of a gear freak if you live in a rural area to me i i don't you know what i i truly believe that too yes yes where here, you know, I was exposed to, I was pre-internet. So, you know, I still yeah. had to look up stuff in, in on inks. Ink, ink, I used to look up uh, stuff on books, magazines, catalogs. Catalogs were the biggest thing. Right. I would, I would collect catalogs and that's how you got informed of things, you know? And sure. that's when uh, music, uh, what was it? Uh, guitar magazine started coming out around that time. Uh, yeah, I was I was just going to mention late seventies. Yeah, we were. Um, that was our biggest resource when we were kids. Was Guitar Player magazine. Yep. Um, Guitar for the practicing musician hadn't even come out yet. Guitar World was just, many years. Yeah, the, there was a long time when Guitar Player was the only the only game in town. When I was thirteen and just starting out in guitar, I got a library pass one day. And because uh, that was one of the ways we'd get out of class is we'd pretend we were smart so we could go study something in the library. <laughs> this was 1973. I found out that they had every issue of Guitar Player going back to the first issue in 1967. Wow. So then I got I just I just started trying to get library passes as many afternoons as I could. And I went and read the whole Guitar Player magazine from every issue from 67 up until current at the time, which was 73. Wow. That's yeah. That's, that's a long I time. To, I tried to absorb that knowledge because that was the only place you could get it. And so then we got, of course we got a subscription to guitar player. So every month we would just read it cover to cover like twice every month Yeah, for all three these. I remember when he used to, um, used to see it at you know at the corner um the little magazine uh booth sure. know, newspaper uh magazines it would sell out i remember yeah we, i would come out of school it'd yeah. be like two or three of us we'll walk over there and or he'll have one issue 
<laughs> right. And so we're like, okay, we'll just we'll split it, you know. We all pitch yeah. in and we'll just pass it around. Do you remember when they used to put one of those little black records in there that you could yes. put on a turn? Yeah. yeah that, that's I do remember that. That's I think uh, there was a, I think there was a Satriani record in one of those one time. Well, that's pretty cool. No, I never got that one. I don't think I even kept any of the records. Someone who else were the, to... who were the uh I think the, some of the best parts were the the uh, lessons in the back. Who yeah. were some of the who were some of your favorites of the teachers that were in the back there? I think uh I think one of them was the 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 the, the Kinks. There's one with the Kinks. Okay. From what I remember, well, and that was one yeah. of the ones that just kind of like, wow, that is this is awesome. Yeah. There was a a studio guitar player, Tommy Tedesco, who had a oh yeah, he had his column called Studio Log, and yes, incredible his, guitarist. His, yeah, his um, his column was just full of great info. Somebody should put all just all of his columns in a book. His son, I'm sure Hex knows about this too. His son made a movie about him. Yes. He could never get it released as far. Do you know if it ever got released? No, I think he was still trying to push for that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What he did end up doing is I believe he got clips of it and he combined it with everybody else. The, the rest of the, of the, um, the, oh geez. What are they called again? The Wrecking crew. The wrecking crew. Yeah. He got the rest of the wrecking crew. So there's bits and pieces of all of them. So that he right. combined it all together as a whole wrecking crew versus just his about his dad. Yeah, well, I I was hoping that the one just about Tommy would come out oh, because that would have been awesome. guitar players that would be like a, a gem. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, that would be awesome. That would be truly did awesome. You, speaking of which, did you happen to see any of Ken Burns' country music series on PBS that's on right now? No, I haven't had the chance to watch it. I do have it on. Uh, I do have it recorded on the DVR. So, <laughs> we've been well. We don't have uh, Netflix, and we've been uh, enjoying it because uh, he he just. I mean, he gets a little too political at times. He his his take on he always turns everything into sort of a political thing. But uh, you can't deny. I mean, regardless of what he puts you know just putting ken burns aside the topic the subject matter is so good just to see all those different eras of country music he had no choice but to cover the whole history of it so he dug up all kinds of greats you'll you'll enjoy it i don't i think it might be eight eight episodes and they're like two or three hours each so it's it's a long it's a lot of material but it's great i recommend it I'll, I'll definitely watch that. I'll definitely watch that. Yeah, I grew up, uh, I remember when Austin City Lights came out. I used, we used to yeah. watch that. I mean, it was kind of a, a religious thing in our in our household where I, yeah. my, my parents would set up and be like, all right, you guys be quiet, sit down and watch this. Wow. So we Were your parents there. musical? Uh, my dad plays harmonica. So he was a harmonica player, but, uh, you know, nothing big, just a little gigs here and there little bars uh but right. um you know he's always there there was always music in the household that's for sure right that's cool uh my dad never was a good musician my mom had been my mom played organ in church and she played french horn in high school um so 
I guess we got some talent from my mom, but we got the love of music from my dad because he he just was a huge music fan. We when we were little kids, the TV would be in one room, and that was called the TV room, and the music the the record player was in the living room, and TV to us was just boring. To us, we wanted to be in the living room with the records, and we just pretended to be the Beatles. And the couch was the stage, so you just jump up on the couch and that stage. And so we we made ourselves into musicians from just in our minds from when we were little kids. It's almost like when we got the instruments, that was just that was almost like a given that that oh yeah, we can play these because we've been doing this for you know we've been pretending for ten years already. I'm not going to say I'm part of the old generation, but I do adapt or had a lot of those uh, upbringings as well. Where, yeah, you did do, you know, you mimic the people or the, the, the things you listened, you know, you copied them. Well, there's something interesting that's happened with, with um, music, digital music. When I started hearing vocoder coming back around in the, well, like when Cher, uh, Do You Believe in Love came out in 98, I think it was. Mm-hmm. She had vocoder, and vocoder was around in the '70s, but it like made a comeback when when Cher she made that it, yeah. record. Um, and all of a sudden, it started showing up on all kinds of different genres of music. And I thought to myself, now when when young kids are starting to learn to sing, they're going to be copying vocoder. So we're going to start seeing um, vocal talent that that's not natural like well yeah and it's good you know the same thing with guitar we're we're seeing little you know eight-year-old kids that can shred you know that can shred like crazy because the the ability to the access to all this great music and i think when you start out just like those that suzuki violin method that they they teach little kids how to play violin when you start at such a young age you can really do the same thing with tennis you can get really really good in a way that starting later just never never does so you know i'm i'm curious to see where it's all going to go i think there's going to be even more of a of a pendulum swing back to playing real instruments i, I hope it goes that way yeah i mean it it's it's yeah it 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 is reaching that peak i think and eventually we are going to see that uh that ball dropped pretty soon. Well, I hope so. I'm trying to keep an open, I'm trying to keep an open mind because I think the there's always the the room and the possibility for you know advanced technology to be able to be utilized in ways. I think there's there's so much possibility open by combining all the different methods and genres and ways to do it. The only thing that I I feel a little bit nostalgic about is I'd like to see people be able to play, be able to play instruments and not just rely uh, on processors. <laughs> yes. I guess I'm talking about, yeah, like sampling versus being able to actually play it. I think Five. before, yeah, I think before Prince died, he, he made some smart Alec remarks and, and I'm fully, fully respecting Prince. I, I think he's a genius and I, I even liked what he what he said, which was, you know, if you want to if you want to be a musician, learn to play first. Some some to that effect. 
Yeah, I, I believe I did. I, I did read that quote somewhere like that. I'm not. I'm not saying it right, but I. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, with it had that meaning. Yes, yes, yeah. and yes. Um, I mean, with technology nowadays. I mean, even on even on an iPhone, you can create music, but is it really music? Yeah, uh, yeah I still think it's. It's. I music. try to keep an open mind. Yeah, I I I do think it's music. I think of people that really like give you goosebumps or move you, or you know immediately when you hear them, like, oh, that's BB King, that's Santana, that's Hendrix. Oh yeah. There's oh, yeah. there are there are people, there are iconic people from different eras that break new ground. It kind of goes back to, I guess, what I was saying earlier, but. There are people, you know, in any era, there are always going to be those people who stand out, who just find a way to rise above the noise and and create something that's never been heard before. And then they're they're the icon for that era. Oh, definitely. And it's almost like what uh, I think uh, G. Smith said once: um, it takes you ten thousand hours of practice just to learn how to pluck one string. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's yep. it's definitely Did, an instrument. Were you? Uh, Go ahead. Who were your? Who were your? Uh, who did? Who made you want to play guitar when you started out? When I started out, I think it was you know, like Carlos Santana. I remember when I was young, I would hear him. Um, there's so many. I mean, <laughs> uh, Jeff yeah. Beck, uh, or even. Uh, uh bb king i oh i fell in love and beaten with bb uh, King live in the regal that for me was like wow can't believe he's doing that you know for me that was an eye-opener um right you know all the clocks all the class you know all three kings were were pretty they were probably the greatest um even you know like cream and eric clapton you know the rolling stones little walter you know, even going to Bob Dylan, you know, when he made that right. transition between acoustic to electric, I, th- sure. I thought that was that was phenomenal for me. Well, uh, and some some of his records in the '90s were when he went back to kind of had kind of just a raw blues band in the studio. Some of his '90s records were great too. Yeah, they were. They were. Dylan, they were. Yeah. Who else? I mean, like Joe Crocker. You know. You know, just. The band Free, everybody on Free, John Mayer, yeah. the Blues Breakers, you know, um, which Eric Clapton was in. Um, yeah. Michael Bloomfield, you know, that was another one. That was a big wide opener for me, you know. When I heard Michael Bloomfield playing, I was like, wow. That, that was phenomenal for me. Did you get into uh, grunge in the 90s? Were you into, like, Soundgarden or any of that stuff? I went through all that. That was... Uh, you know, I, I grew up in the grunge era. Right. So I, I got a little bit of the night or the eighties. Right. Or the tail end of the, you know, long hair rocker sunset strip kind of folks. Right. So I got the end of that and I got all the grunge, you know, through high school. So, so definitely, definitely. But, you know, I'm a throwback from the past. I, you know, I'll listen to stuff in the forties you know the, yeah. the big bangs you know the big band bands 
So yeah, yeah, I have a wide spectrum of music. Um, lately, I've been listening to like uh, Japanese rock. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> that stuff is awesome. Yeah, I tried to stay current, Jim, by listening to the radio. You know, by the by the eighties, I was I didn't really like all that kind of. Human League, Depeche Mode, you know, kind of gay stuff that was going on in the early 80s. Uh, but the Stray Cats were kind of keeping... Stray Cats, yeah. Keeping, keeping, you know, rock or rockabilly alive. And then Steve Ray Vaughan was kind of the... Oh, yeah. He was kind of like the uh, the only one that carried the blues through the 80s. Yeah. There, there was a big one, but... And then, you know, I liked the police a lot because there was just, it was so musical in those days, but there was a lot of sort of that, that hair metal, I guess it was called. It just, it didn't do it for me. So when, when Nirvana came out and when like Jane's Addiction came out, I thought, man, this is really refreshing. And then the whole, the grunge thing hit and I liked it so much better than the hair metal. It was almost like it really that revolution that happened in the early nineties really was overdue at that point. It was, it was, I should say it was bound to happen. Yeah. It was, you know, it, it was reaching its, um, I don't want to say end of life, but it was reaching that cycle, you know, where, where right. something new, you knew was going to take off. We just didn't know what it was going to take off or, you know, revolutionize into, but yeah, that, that definitely took off. Like and then you know, Van, Halen, Van Halen just kept doing what they did through through it. Didn't matter what else was going on. Van Halen just kept doing whatever they did. <laughs> oh yeah, they, they kept you know they were you know pedal to the metal. They kept on playing the way they did, and they were still selling out, and they were selling records like crazy. Yeah. So you know, and and I think as as the population grew, also um, you do notice that a lot of um, the genres kind of divided you know they, everybody kind of stuck to a genre and there was not well, a I lot think, of overcross what, until what, now i think right well what happened you know for for decades the radio business you had to define a genre so that yes. because people wanted they wanted to be able to okay this is a rock station this is a country station this is a spanish station if you're in a, a market that has you know a hispanic population uh, so they had to keep it compartmentalized. And then, you know, there was always that underground scene, like of record stores and stuff, but that was always kind of a fringe FM radio kind of like helped break down the barriers. But it wasn't until the internet that, that all of the stuff really was able to just bleed over into yes. everything or, or I should say, everything got so subcategorized. Everything was able to just branch out into a million subcategories. Yes, it did. It, it was, did. That definitely it the internet. It just wasn't possible the way radio was organized in in the earlier eras. No, I mean you would have to stay up late just to listen to the blues, and right. and you know you would have to. <laughs> I remember I had to. Um, aluminum foil on the antenna and have it almost up to the window <laughs> just so I can pick up, uh, I think it was, uh, Cal, Cal state, uh, long beach. I think it was, they were playing it on Sunday nights just right. to pick up blues. 
And, you know, we had a, here in Albuquerque, we had a, a Wednesday night blues show on the college station. Yeah. But yeah. long before that, what my dad had, you know, we had all those Freddie King and BB King records when I was a little kid. And uh, so that stuff got in, you know, got into our soul real, real young. That's pretty and cool. Of course, you know, Cream was so blues based, and and like you said, Bloomfield. Uh, my dad was a big fan of Motown, so we we had a lot of uh, Otis Redding influence, Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder. Yeah, those, um, are, those are classics. Those are awesome. Well, let me ask you some random questions here. Um, now you're into cars as well, right? Hot rods. Yeah, I was uh, when I wasn't playing music. I was drag racing for a while. <laughs> that's quarter uh, or eight that's, eighth of a mile uh we we did quarter mile that's another thing hex and i have in common because hex is kind of a car guy too yeah oh yeah um <laughs> no my you know my my dad's from wisconsin and my grandfather worked at chevrolet so i always felt i mean just we grew up with you know loving cars too so in northern new mexico cars are but you know we have a lot of low riders and stuff so yeah. i just i always liked music and cars growing up and uh, I got into drag racing a Firebird in the late 80s through the early 90s. I built my own, you know, drag car. And I had a group, group of friends. We'd, we'd go around the Southwest. We'd go down and race in Amarillo and Phoenix because Albuquerque's good, but it's always fun to go, you know, go take a road trip and go see what the other tracks are like. And, we, you know, we never, we never did it super seriously. I mean, you get serious enough to do it, but we never got super fast or anything like that. Some people, it just becomes a, a, a whole life. <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, I wasn't able to take it that far, but it, it was a lot of fun. And I, and I also have always, you know, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a car designer that there's something that always crosses over in everything. Like those double necks that I mentioned, my brother, Tim and I played, I designed them. And uh, if you look way back on my Instagram page, there's some pictures of them. But there was kind of a, a breakthrough design in double necks because I gave myself a challenge of making them lightweight and balanced, really, because a lot of double necks are really hard to hold. And we'd play them all night long for four hours. Oh, wow. We'd play, play them the whole, we'd play them the whole show. And back in those days, you know, you, you, you went on at nine and you'd play till one thirty with like two or three, you know, usually just two breaks because we'd play long sets. But so the, the, the overlap of all this stuff is I, I wanted to be a car designer, but everything that I get into, I really try to bring the design and the artistic aspect into it. And so when, you know, the internet came along, just like with learning how to, how guitar pedal circuits work or amps, I also taught myself how to do Photoshop and I started getting back into car design, uh, like a lot of, you know, millions of people are really good designers and at their own, because again, the, the tools are available to everybody. Everybody that's got a computer can Photoshop cards. And, uh, so there was a, there've been periods in the last 10 years, 10, 15 years that I've designed, uh, quite a few, you know, fantasy cars, you know, mods on classic, you know, vets, Camaros, uh, Trans Ams, I love GTOs, a lot of GM stuff. Um, so that that kind of overlaps into my pedals. It all to me, it's all just part of one big. It all kind of goes in one big ball or something. Yeah, it, it connects together. Right. 
there were some forums. I mean, that's the other great thing about the internet is people are getting together. Like we have access to all these people that we normally wouldn't like when I got back into car design real heavy, you know, like I never went to school for it and never went to art school or anything. I'm self-taught in art, but, uh, in the late two thousands, I started going on these car design forums and there were all these retired car designers from GM and other brands, like they, they, a lot of car designers would go to work for Ford and then Chevy would steal them away and so GM would steal them and all that stuff. But there were all these retired car designers who were just getting into the internet. And so you could talk to your heroes. It'd be like, you know, being able to go backstage and talk to Clapton or something. But these guys were just readily available and they would like, they would critique my designs or other guys like me that were just kind of like amateurs, yeah. but to be able to hang out with giants like that was, was just one of the, another, one of the great things about the internet. So I was lucky, you know, I, I found some forums where some of those guys were hanging out and they were happy to do it because they were just, they were glad to know that people appreciated their designs so much. These were some of the guys that designed the real classic cars that, that everybody thinks are the like the real classics. Yeah, that go for millions of dollars sometimes on the auction blocks. Yeah. So yes, the rare, yeah, the rare ones too. Yeah. Well, you know what? I feel the same way talking to you. You know, I'm talking to someone that takes a wall pedal. You know, it was designed by someone, and but takes that wall pedal and actually elevates it to another level. And I think that's what you bring to the stage, which makes Thanks. it amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I've been pretty lucky. Like you said, the internet, it makes it incredible. Even with Skype, it makes it incredible, yeah. you know, access uh, and the ability to talk to a lot of people and right. reach, you know, different types of forums. Right. And, uh, and I've been pretty lucky to, you know, have met like Hex Henderson. We actually had burgers together. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, just Jason Sine that plays with the Dirty Knobs uh, with Mike Campbell and them. So, you know, it's, right. it's, it's been amazing, you know, so it's, it's, it's incredible what uh, technology has done for us, but at the same time it's taking some of our jobs away too, you know, so there's a drawback right. to that, but. Well, I'm, I'm very uh, pleased that you went and listened to some of the videos on YouTube that I've made. It's uh, I don't have a ton of subscribers. It's almost like a, it's almost like a niche thing. I haven't done any of the, um, I haven't done any of the promotion that everybody tells me that you're supposed to do like, Oh, you got to get better mics and you got to, you got to set up a little video studio and you got to this and that. And I, I just want it to be more, um, a little bit more on my terms. And I figure I I don't want, I don't want to sell everybody a wah. I want to sell people a wah that appreciate whatever uniqueness I bring to that as, uh, and I did. Yeah. And I said earlier in this, in this chat, we're having that I, that I don't borrow money and that's, I've kind of purposely limited the growth. I think there've been temptations along the way to, you know, borrow a bunch of money and maybe even subcontract the assembly part out to Dunlop. Dunlop is more than willing to make products for anybody if you've got the money and they would be the perfect choice if I wanted to go big, you know, big time. Yes. But then you look at that and you go, well, 
that means that I'd have to be in 60 guitar centers or however many guitar centers there are, 150 stores. And I just know from being in the business, and I'm not not to get on here to badmouth Guitar Center, but they have a certain way that they do business. And you have to provide enough product to get all of your all of your models in every one of their stores. And so you've got to have enough financial backing to be able to create hundreds of thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of product to get it on their shelves. Just on the and, shelf, yes. And the and the pressure is on because if it doesn't sell, it's not their fault. You know, a lot of guys in my industry want a bad mouth guitar center and say, oh well, you know, but it's really not I mean, they're just the place where people go buy it. Yeah, you can't. No, they're not the... Right. It has to be. There's a lot of things that have to come together for it to be a hit at Guitar Center. And it is it is hard to go against the Dunlop has a lot of the big stars locked up with with um, whatever you call their they're endorsing. Endorsing. Like, yeah. Oh, you know, the, 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 they, they've got a. Pretty much everybody you can name is using Dunlop Waz. So I don't want to try to um, swim upstream with that. I, I want to be in a, in a different uh, area of the market, I guess. Uh, and, and it's because, and again, it's I don't want to end up getting stuck with $100,000 worth of stuff or $200,000 worth of stuff that takes me five years to sell and I end up paying a bunch of interest because I couldn't pay the loan back. Yeah. No, that makes total I like, sense. I like it where it's at. I'm trying to figure out how to make it grow. I'm, I'm designing an amp. I've got, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail about that, but I've, I'm designing a bunch of other stuff. I'm about to branch out from Waz into a bunch of other products. Um, so, I do need to get my website going for the meantime, you know, finding me on YouTube is great. Finding me on eBay is great. And, uh, just stay tuned because I've got a bunch of other stuff that's, uh, to be, to be announced. And we'll be happy to promote it. Just let us know what happened. Uh, send us a link or send us a little press kit about it. Pictures, images, sound, and I'll definitely, I'll, I'll air it. I'll put it on my website um instagram social media um i'll definitely help you promote that and that's probably the best thing we could do is word of mouth and uh, a lot of musicians if you know when someone has one pedal and it's like word of mouth then you know right. hey i like that pedal where'd you get it and you know that's how it spreads so, right that's it so our listeners can shop at ebay right correct yeah just uh, enter Joe Gagan Wa in the search. That's the name of the store. Joe Gagan Wa. Yeah, Joe Gagan Wa is will take just any anywhere on the internet. Just put Joe Gagan Wa into your wherever you type words. <laughs> <laughs> your, sur- your search engine. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't like to say the name of that one that starts with a G. Um, but my but the spelling is G A G A N, so it's just Joe J O E G A G A N. And if you put the word "wa" with it, you'll see, you'll find me. I'm there. Yeah, and they can also follow you on Instagram, Joe Gagan as well. Yeah, it's Joe dot Gagan. 
on Instagram. And again, that's, I don't know how many Joe Gagans there are, but you'll see it. I think uh, on that one, you're holding the guitar, I believe, right? Uh, it changes. Yeah. Yeah, that changes. I, I have, I have, yeah, I have my picture with my, my wife-to-be, Kalena. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot of guitars. A lot of, the, the Instagram goes back to 2015, I think. So that's, yeah. yeah well, that's good to know. And uh, we'll keep our ears out and our eyes open. And we'll definitely, uh, you know, see what, what has to come. I know well, uh, Mr. Joe Giggins is going to have uh, some surprise for us here in the future. So we'll definitely want to take advantage of those. I'm I'm glad to get to know you. I'm very grateful that you took the time. I could see you you did great research. I, it kind of surprised me. You, you threw a bunch of stuff at me that uh, that proved to me that you really you really did check it out. So that's that's an honor, and I I'm very grateful to you. No, I I, I take this serious. You know, I, it's yeah. For for me, it's not just a hobby. It's it's a it, it's a passion, you know. Well, and that's you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna do great. I'm gonna keep telling more people about you, and uh, God bless you and and your family. Thank you, thank you for the opportunity, and uh, thank you for going on the show. Yeah, I'll see you on the interwebs. I do want to give this chance. Uh, thank uh, Joel Gigan for an incredible episode. Wow, I'm getting a lot of uh, <laughs> echo here. Um, sorry about that. I will fix it uh, for the rest of the show here at NAM. But I do want to give a thank you to uh, Joel Gigan, giving us a chance, uh, his time and his opportunity to interview him, talk about his WAP walls and and uh, other projects that he has coming out. Um, it was incredible talking to him. He's very knowledgeable. He is like Hex Henderson, uh, has a huge array of knowledge of music and and uh, music history and that's what's amazing about uh, these gentlemen that they are very smart and in, in in their own respect uh but stay tuned uh, like i said we're here at nam we are getting ready to uh attend uh media day here at nam so stay tuned and we got more stuff coming out and uh we'll see you uh as the show progresses have a good one bye mm-hmm.